Well, we uh, have an opportunity tonight to uh, study something we didn't think we might study this morning at least as uh, Russ was going to be with us tonight and going through one of the Old Testament prophets that we have been going through on Sunday evening. But I got late call up from the bench that I was going to be coming tonight. So I want us to open to a passage we've been in before, but it's probably been five or six years since we were there. So open your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And I want to I want to read a section for us really beginning from chapter 7 verse 53 and then reading down through verse 11 and surely you will uh, understand the passage or at least get an idea of the passage from your own familiarity just with the gospel of John. John says and everyone went to his own home and uh, that'll of course, he's talking about the Pharisees and those who were hounding him before that in the previous chapter and verse 40 through the end of the chapter as they were challenging Jesus as he was in Jerusalem during the feast. And they all after that went to their own home. But Jesus, it says, chapter 8, verse 1, went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, Who or he who is without sin among you, let him first be the one to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. He was left alone, and the woman was there where where she was in the midst. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. It's a riveting text for us to just think about once again as we think about Jesus Christ and are confronted with the reality of who He is. The Pharisees, of course, hated Christ. They wanted nothing to do with Christ. He was a challenge to them at every turn, every interaction they had. In fact, they wanted him to be brought to them by those who were following him during the feast time. Back in verse 45, there came the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, why did you not bring him? They, they wanted him brought to them. They wanted him out of the way. They wanted what we find in chapters 13 and following and the whole trial of Jesus Christ to happen as quickly as possible because they didn't want Jesus Christ around So that really is the context for which we find ourselves in this passage. But you notice, even probably in your own English Bible, at verse 53, at the beginning of the verse, there's a little bracket put there in your English Bible. 
And there's another bracket put at the end of verse 11. Those are indicators for us who have our English Bibles that there's something going on with this text in reference to the Scriptures. Those who study the fragments of the copies of the original text will tell us, as maybe even in your margin it says to you when you look at verse 53, it says to you that these verses are not part of the original Gospel of John, or at least of the older manuscripts is how it says it in probably your own margin of the Bible where you have verses that are supposedly cross-referenced verses for you. Those who study the manuscripts will also tell you that when it, it makes an appearance in the older texts of the copies of the original documents of Scripture, it more than not appears in other places in the Gospel, even in other chapters. For example, some manuscripts have it after verse 36 in this very chapter of the Gospel of John, where Verse 36 says, If therefore the Son of Man shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And some older manuscripts insert verse 1 through 11, chapter 8, or verse 53 through verse 11 of chapter 8 right there. Other manuscripts have it after verse 44 in John chapter 8. Some take it and just place it at the end of the gospel altogether. And some have it not in John's Gospel at all, but included in the Gospel of Luke. So there's a large number of what some might call variants that take place with this particular text, this particular accounting of the text. In fact, I have known pastors who avoid teaching this text altogether simply because of that very fact. They will skip over this entire text and not even teach it as if it doesn't belong. And while there are many variants in the manuscripts that we have that are copies of the Old Testament that people, that the scribes were copying and making copies of the original text, one thing we can say is that even though the scribes who originally did the copying of it could not agree as to where it should be placed, it's also true that they could all agree that this text at least should be included someplace in the text. In other words, that we cannot just ignore it. We can't ignore it even as much as we can't ignore the end of Mark chapter 16 where you have the same kind of thing going on with the text. So although there is a whole lot of disagreement as to where this portion of Scripture belongs in the entire scope of the Gospel of John, I believe that God has seen fit through His providence through His sovereign care of His own Word and oversight, God has allowed it to remain as part of His Word, and therefore it's worthy of our attention. It's worthy of us taking this text and actually looking at it and what it says. So, With that said, I want us to just begin to look at this text once again tonight as we have in the past, gone through this in our study of the Gospel of John. And I want to start by asking us this question. And maybe it's an appropriate question for even for the time in which we live, particularly this last year. Have you ever wanted to just start life over again? 
Right? Have you ever just wanted to start with a clean slate, hit the rewind button, go back to the beginning, start over, start anew, start afresh, let the video of life be moved backwards, erase all that's gone on that, and start doing it all over again, only this time it'd be different. Have you ever wanted to go somewhere where nobody knew you? Nobody, you were, you were new to everybody. Nobody knew your background. Nobody knew your history. Nobody knew your faults. Nobody knew what was going on in your life. Nobody knew what has happened in your life. You were new to everybody. There's no history. You can just start fresh. You ever thought about that? You ever thought like that in life? In our day, right, in our day today, in this day and age of information technology that we live in, it's getting more and more difficult to even think in that kind of reality as if you could even do that. There, there was a time when a person could seemingly move to some other part of the country or some other place in the world and not many people know about them at all, but that really isn't happening anymore. Even in our brief history as a country from... The old West days, the dream of starting a new life, someone would pack up their children and their family in a covered wagon and go across the country here out to the West in order they they might have some new life on the frontier. But all of that is really changed now. All of that is different. All of that is not how it can be. It's hard to start over in life today. In fact, even when someone applies for a job, you have to submit something, and oftentimes it's something in which they want to do a background check on you. Not only do they check out your social media accounts, not only do they look at what you do in the present time and the short history that even social media has been around, but they want to know in a background kind of way what you've done over the last 10 or 15 years. I remember when I was getting hired with the Federal Aviation Administration, I had to fill out, I had come out of the military, I had a Top, or top secret clearance, and I came out of the military, and I still had to do a background check with the Federal Aviation Administration, which is a form that's fairly thick, and you had to fill out 15 years of previous addresses and friends and all these kinds of things that they wanted to check on in order to make sure that you weren't somebody who wanted to go crazy. Well, with the advent of the Internet and the advent of public records, in seconds, anybody can know about your life. Just Google your name sometime and find out exactly what's already out there just in the public square. It's harder and harder for us to get a fresh start anywhere by simply moving from one place to another. In fact, only those, when you really think about it, only those that can get a fresh start in some kind of way in this country is those that enter the witness protection program, and I'm not sure any of us want to really do that. I'm... Sometimes a golfer. I like to golf from time to time. And in golf, there's a shot that we like to use in golf called a mulligan. Right? You stand on the tee, you hit a shot, it goes into the trees, which oftentimes is where my ball goes. Well, a mulligan is a do-over. It's a freebie. It's a shot you get to take again. Try it again. We won't count that one. Well, that's what we want in life. We want a mulligan in life. We just want a do-over. I want to try it again. More times than not in life, we do something that we want to just have a do-over. Sometimes we just want a second chance. 
Well, the beauty of this text is that reality. We can have a second chance as people, as people living in this world. We don't have to to move to some remote location. We don't have to enter some witness protection program. We don't have to try to rewind the tape of life and erase every detail of our life. We don't even have to turn off all the social media realities. All we need to do is encounter Christ. And when we encounter Christ, He makes all things new. This is what's in this text before us here in John chapter 8. Jesus has, as I said, returned to the temple in Jerusalem. It is the morning after the feast. After the night, He went over to the Mount of Olives, which was His typical way of doing things. Maybe He even went over to to the area of Bethany to spend the night over there. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us where Mary and Martha were and Lazarus. But it's the last day of the tabernacle, or the, the Feast of Tabernacles had ended the night before. And a group of scribes and Pharisees bring a woman before Christ. And John tells us that she had been caught in the act of adultery. It's an interesting terminology there because this wasn't just simply an accusation. They hadn't found some sinning woman sitting on the street corner and they said, oh, we'll use this person, we'll accuse her of these things. No, she had been caught in the act of adultery. Nothing for her could be more cut and dried than the guilt that she had of this very thing. And the religious leaders of the day reminded Jesus that the law of Moses insisted that she be stoned to death. The law tells us, verse 4 or verse 5, to stone such women. We're to take women like this and we're to kill them. That's what the law says. And so Jesus asks, so they ask Jesus, what should we do? What do you say? What do you say with this woman with the intent that they want to catch Jesus in a trap. They want to try to find Jesus in a theological conundrum. Okay, Jesus, here's the theological tr- scenario that you've dreamed. This is your ordination test. Here you are. We are the theological giants in the room. Here's the question for you. We have this woman. She's caught in this act of adultery. Here's what the law says we're supposed to do. What do you say about this? Now, with that in mind, we need to remember a couple of realities, a couple of things happening here. Because by this time in the Gospel of John, Jesus, as I said, has been losing his popularity. He's not really all that popular anymore. The religious leaders just want to get rid of him. They want to have a final end to him once and for all and his ministry. They don't want people following him at all. And in order for them to accomplish that, they are actively pursuing some way to destroy in the minds and hearts of the people his credibility. And a good way to do that would be to trap him into saying something that the law of Moses contradicted. In other words, say something which apparently appears as if the law of Moses is meaningless because Moses was held in very high esteem. The law of Moses was promoted all over the place by the Pharisees. What does the law say? Well, it's interesting. What does the law of Moses say concerning this? 
What do you say? Well, the, they're, they're talking about the Old Testament book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10, and here's what it says. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, or who commits adultery with a friend's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put, surely be put to death. Now notice in our text that the scribes in verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees bring a woman caught in adultery. They only bring the woman. There's already this theological selective justice that they are putting into practice. They already aren't following the law of Moses as the law of Moses states it because Leviticus 20 verse 10 clearly says that the man and the woman are to be taken and put to death, regardless of who they are, but they haven't done that. They've already outstepped the law. And what's interesting here is that the Old Testament law doesn't specify that they must be executed by stoning. It just says they must be put to death. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 17, God has laid out for the nation of Israel, just how they are to carry out any kind of necessary justice for anyone who is caught in a deed which will require their death. In fact, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 17 for a moment, just so we can see this. Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Here is how you administer this kind of justice. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep which has a blemish or any defect, for that is a detestable thing to the Lord your God. So if there is found in your midst, in any of your towns which the Lord your God has given you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God by transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly hosts which I have not commanded. And if it is told you and you have heard of it, then you shall inquire of it thoroughly. Go investigate the issue. Go investigate whatever the issue is, this, this worship issue that he is talking about. But it deals with whatever is evil in the sight of the, law, of the Lord, specifically dealing with the worship of God. You go and you investigate it, and behold, if it is true, and the thing certain that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your gates that is, the man or the woman, and you shall stone them to death. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst." So there's the principle for administering this kind of justice or any kind of justice there where there was evil inside the camp. And of course, adultery fit that reality because it was detestable to God. God considered that the marriage covenant, a covenant which is one, God brought them together and man was not to infiltrate that in any kind of sinful way. And so that would institute this kind of justice. No adultery is mentioned in that reality, at least here in this context, and yet 
This is the justice at hand. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were legalists. The Pharisees were the very legalists that were fond of misquoting the law in order to provoke Jesus into a very kind of theological battle and debate about the law and what it says and what it doesn't say. But Jesus, back in John chapter 8, we can go back there, he wouldn't do that. Jesus wasn't about to get into a debate about the very law, by the way, that he had given to Moses in the Old Testament. This is God himself incarnate. He's not going to debate about that. No one knows it better than Jesus Christ. He stays focused. He's on the real issue. He kneels down and he begins to write on the ground with his finger. We don't know what he's writing. Maybe he's writing just the reference, Deuteronomy chapter 17. Maybe he's writing something else. Maybe he's writing to them some word about their Phariseeism. We don't know what he's writing. But the Pharisees continue to badger Jesus with the question, what do we do? What do you say about this woman? And Jesus answers the law with the law, and he applies Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 7 by saying, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. Right? Ostensibly, these were the ones who caught her. These were the ones who found out about the sin. Apparently, they investigated the sin because they knew she was caught in the act of sin. And so therefore, according to Deuteronomy 17, they were the ones, they were the witnesses, they were the ones to be able to be the first to throw the stones. They had found out the guilt. They were to be the ones to begin to purge it from the camp. And so Jesus, by his very question, penetrates the very heart of the problem. They knew what they were doing. They knew they wanted to try to catch Jesus by saying this. They were testing him, as verse 6 says. That the mere question of who is without sin by Jesus is enough to deflate their wrongful indictment. They were trying to justify themselves with their own law, with the law that they had now reapplied in the wrong kind of way, and Jesus takes that very law and applies it right to their heart and deflates their very indictment. And one by one, the text tells us that they all leave. They all leave, starting with the older ones. The older ones certainly couldn't honestly say, well, I'm without sin. I'm going to throw the stone. No, they couldn't do that. They all left. The older ones down to the younger. And Jesus and the woman are there by themselves. Here is Jesus, the only one who could truly condemn, the only one who could truly be there yet without sin. That's Jesus Christ. Everybody else comes with their sin. Jesus Christ is there yet without sin. The only one who could justifiably cast the first stone is still with the woman. And yet he doesn't bring judgment. Instead, he tells her to go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. It's a great story, isn't it? I mean, what a... Wow. Jesus Christ gets this heinous sinner right there before him. And man, he just lets her go. He lets her go. 
And here, here's the first truth I want to remind us of from this story. That it is the grace of Christ and His forgiveness that gives us a second chance. It is the grace of Christ and His forgiveness that gives us a second chance. All of us need a do-over. All of us need a second chance. Just like this woman who was caught in sin. (coughs) Excuse me. We are, even as Christians, every day face-to-face with the only one who can carry out the eternal reality of deserved punishment. Not one of us can stand in a room with everybody else and say, you're guilty, I'm not, right? That's why Galatians 6, 1 says, when we see a brother or sister caught in a trespass, we go with humility because we know we could be caught in the same trespass. Jesus doesn't have to do that. Jesus is the one whom can mete out the deserved punishment, and yet instead of death, instead of the punishment, we are offered life. Why? Simply because the only one who has the right to execute us has taken our place. That's the only reason. The only reason Jesus could say to this woman, neither do I condemn you, is because Jesus knew what was coming down the road. And Jesus is the only one who could say that truly. She is offered a do-over. She's offered a second chance. Instead of meeting death, this woman meets Jesus. The reality is it's the same for every thief. It's the same for every liar. It's the same for every career criminal. It's the same for every selfish husband and unsubmissive wife and rebellious child, whatever we have been or whoever we are right now, through Jesus Christ, each of us can have a do-over. Each of us can have a second chance. That's one of the wonderful truths of this passage. That's one of the the, the great things that, that is being shown here from the text about Jesus Christ. In Christ, there is full and complete pardon at the price of His life. If we'll just come. But but even with that, isn't, isn't there a problem in our minds? Isn't there a a conundrum going on, a theological trouble in our minds when we come to a text like this, because one problem involves the business of wrongly judging others. One problem we have in this text is the reality of wrongly judging others. The Pharisees are obviously guilty of wrongly judging others, Ye without sin cast the first stone, right? And and oftentimes we might even hear people say that we as Christians shouldn't judge others. Many times we hear that. I want us to think about that for a moment. When people say you shouldn't judge others, well, don't we as parents rightly warn our children to judge others? Don't we rightly do that? I mean, isn't it right to say to our children, you better be careful what kind of friends you hang around with? Isn't it right for us to say that? 
as parents to our kids? Isn't saying that, aren't we telling them in saying that, you better judge other people. You better make the right judgment call when it comes to your friends when we get married. We judge our future spouse, don't we? We ask ourselves, is this person the one I want to spend the rest of my life with? Is this person, should this be the one that I desire to spend the rest of my life with? And it's based upon a judgment of them. And yet oftentimes we hear people say, you shouldn't judge. In the church, we affirm or do not affirm teachers and leaders. We judge them by asking, is this person who is spiritually wanting to lead or desiring to lead, are they spiritually mature enough to lead? Does this person's life exemplify the Christian life? In saying that, are we saying, judge them? There's nothing wrong with that kind of judging, is there? In fact, the Apostle Paul exhorted Timothy to do that very thing. He said, put them to the test. Put them to the test. Scrutinize them. In our everyday lives, we wouldn't want our children's school to hire someone who was going to be a predator on our children. We even here in this church have people who work in the children's ministry go through a background check. We judge them based upon their character. We certainly don't want our teenagers to hang around the local drug dealers. So it's somewhat startling when when you look at a text like this to try to understand where many get this notion that Christians should not judge. Certainly I understand they go to Matthew chapter 7 and they turn there and they go, see, doesn't it say, watch how you judge, don't judge, lest you're going to be judged. And I think the problem comes from the English language that we use. Because we use the word judge in two ways. We use it for discernment and we use it for condemnation. Right? The Bible commands us to be discerning of others. Paul tells the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good morals. Well, I'll be misled if I certainly don't judge. If I don't come into that time where I'm judging someone else about their very character because I want to realize what bad character is and I don't want to be around that. The psalmist in Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Well, how are you going to know that if you don't judge? We are exhorted in Psalm 26, verse 4, Do not sit with deceitful men or consort with hypocrites. Well, how do you know that? You have to make a judgment. There are a lot of places within the Word of God where we are commanded to be judging, and by that we mean to be discerning, to think discerningly, to be careful, to be shrewd in that reality, to to be careful in how we are making decisions. So the Bible tells us, in fact, it even commands us to be discerning. All the while, at the same time, the Bible tells us not to be condemning. 
And I think that's where the problem lies in the fact that we, at least in our Western mind, use the word judge in both cases. Right? And in doing so, we wrongly think that we should never be discerning about circumstances and situations, and some of those might include other people. In fact, that is the essence of what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that you not be judged. Right? He means don't condemn others by your own standard of condemnation because he follows that with, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. In other words, your standard of measure will measure you. That's condemnation. He's not talking about being discerning. So here in John chapter 8, this passage highlights for us, at least from the negative side, that while we should always be judging in the sense of discernment, we should never be judging in the sense of condemning. And that's certainly what the Pharisees were doing. In fact, we ought to be putting, as Jesus said to the Pharisees, more attention on our own actions than attention on somebody else's actions. We ought to be judging ourselves. We ought to be examining ourselves in what the Bible expects of us. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves. Paul was telling the Corinthian believers who were claiming to know Christ but acting like pagans, examine yourself to see if you're even in the faith. Test yourself. Right? Your life should be reflecting, at least in some sense, of the fruit of the Spirit. He's not saying be perfect. He's not saying that you're never going to sin. He's not saying that you're never going to fail. He's saying, look, if your life has no fruit at all, you probably ought to ask yourself the question as to whether you're saved. So here in John 8, when Jesus says to this woman, go and sin no more, he isn't just blowing off her sin. Because sometimes we look at a text like this, and we go, man, Jesus just didn't deal with the sin at all. He just moved right past it. I mean, doesn't Jesus deal with sin? I mean, he says, go and sin no more. It's not as if, though, Jesus is saying, ah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about your sin at all. It's no big deal. No, he's calling her to examine herself. Not in the sense of condemn yourself, but in the sense of discerning, have a discerning self-examination of your heart. Right, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you, he says? She says, no one. He says, neither do I. Not only do I not condemn you, but I don't want you condemning yourself. I don't want you judging yourself in that way. What, what you need to do is have a discerning self-examination of your own heart so that you can make the right decisions about how you should be living. That's the first thing that question that we kind of ask ourselves and see going on here, this juxtaposition of judging. The Pharisees judging her, but Jesus not. And it's this very question each of us must face as we seek God for a second chance in life, is it not? We seek Christ's forgiveness. We have to properly examine ourselves, judge ourselves so that we come to Christ and say, here I am. But there's another problem here, and it's with forgiveness. Forgiveness. 
Because it's if in this text and in this little snippet, this little vignette that John gives us to look into, it's as if it seems to make forgiveness so cheap. It seems to make forgiveness so easy, almost to the point where, where we're tempted to even ourselves cheapen the grace of God and forgiveness that He offered. thinking about it. Have you ever received an apology from someone? Someone comes to apologize to you for something they did. You, and, and you just don't want to accept it because it's offered in some kind of cheap way. You, you, you wonder in yourself if they really mean it. Is it really a meant thing? It's, it's just shared in some cheap, shallow way. Someone does something to you. They say something hurtful to you. It's really big to you. It's, it, it hurts you deeply. And, and they offer some sorry, sad kind of sappy offer. Oops, sorry that happened. And then they walk away. It's almost as if they don't really want to take responsibility for their actions. But this is the thing we must never forget. Right? We can never forget that forgiveness from Jesus is free in its offer. It's free in its offer, but it is not free of responsibility. Let me say that again. Forgiveness from Jesus Christ is free in its offer, but it is not free of responsibility. Because Jesus here forgives the woman caught in adultery. No one else could forgive her. Only Jesus could. Neither do I condemn you. That's, that's forgiveness seen in action. She's caught in adultery. Only Jesus can forgive her. But then he says to her those words, go and sin no more. From now on, sin no more. In other words, you have some things you must do. I, I give you forgiveness freely, but it isn't without a responsibility. It isn't without the reality of a proper response by you in light of the forgiveness you have received. You have some things to make right. In other words, Jesus gives her a new lease on life, but He does it with the great expectation that now she will live in obedience to Him. That's the very thing about our life. That's the very same thing. Jesus freely forgives us when we come, and yet there is an expectation that we live in obedience to Him. And even more than that, there is the expectation for us who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and He equips us for that obedience through the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's an expectation, and yet we are empowered to do what He asks. We have the Spirit. The Spirit had not yet been given to these believers. Jesus had not yet died yet. The Spirit was yet to come as they realized after His resurrection. In other words, Christ didn't forgive this woman so she could just return to her own old life and commit adultery again. This was no cheap forgiveness. This was no, oh yeah, don't worry about it. I got you covered. 
This was none of that. There was no cheapness here. This was forgiveness at the full cost of Christ, and yet with the responsibility that from now on you go and you live in obedience. You don't do what you've been doing. So he forgave her so she could live and abide by the very law that he gave. Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 7, verse 20 and 21, the very same chapter at the beginning that says, judge not lest you be judged, in verse 20 and 21, he says, by their fruit you will recognize them. Because not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the very same thing he's saying to you to hear. Those who truly understand what they've been forgiven now begin to walk in obedience of life. It isn't that they're perfect. It's not that they're perfect this side of heaven, that they never sin and never will have a wrong thought or a wrong action. But their direction is toward obedience. James chapter 2, verse 26 says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. We don't earn forgiveness. She didn't earn forgiveness. She didn't do any good works to earn the very forgiveness of Jesus Christ. But when we receive forgiveness like her, we are therefore then equipped and should be motivated to live a life of good works. We should go and live sinning no more. So Jesus said to her, go and sin no more. And that's part of this passage that often goes without being heard. We read this passage, we see it, and we go, man, Jesus is everything. Yeah, if you just go to Jesus, you can get what you need, and He'll forgive you, and don't worry about life after that. That's not what the text says. The text says, go and sin no more. We like it when Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. We love that. We champion that phrase. Oh, forgiveness is free. Yeah. Yes, it is. But it doesn't come without responsibility. There is responsibility. We cannot champion and love the no condemnation of Jesus Christ and then return to the cesspool of sin that we just came out of. We must go and sin no more. That's the essence of this small encounter that some wanted to just remove from the Scriptures. It's the essence of encountering Jesus Christ. There is a do-over. There is a second chance. There is forgiveness with Jesus Christ, but it comes with great responsibility. And you notice in this text, and this will be the last thing I say, two people come to Christ. Two people come that day. That morning, Jesus is there in the temple. Here come the Pharisees, and here come this woman. Two people come to Christ. One comes to condemn. And they condemn according to their own standard. And Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 takes effect. They're judged by the very standard they condemn. And the other one comes as a condemned person. And Jesus, she leaves free, uncondemned. Forgiveness 
And encountering Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness, but not without responsibility. Well, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, this text is rich, rich with your character. We're rich with the reality of you being a merciful, gracious, caring God who will never turn away the humble. Your word tells us that you give grace to the humble, but you are opposed to the proud. Those two people are seen in this very text. The proud Pharisees who come to condemn and condemn based upon their own standards as they twist even your law to say that which it does not say. And this sinning woman caught in the very act of sin, condemned by those who were her peers and yet forgiven by the one the only one who can condemn and yet the only one who could save. Lord, I trust that we would remember that each and every time we sin, you are the one who forgives and our encounter with you is that which changes everything. While your forgiveness has cost you everything and yet on you, you freely give it. And yet at the same time, there is a grand responsibility upon us to walk in sin no more. We thank you for the Spirit's empowerment to be able to do that. We entrust ourselves to you and we ask that you would motivate us, that you would give us every opportunity, whether through circumstances of life you bring difficulty into our life or however that is, that we would learn to obey, learn to submit, learn to trust you. Learn to just rest in who you are, not in what we do, but simply in the fact that you are the one who saves and forgives. And so we thank you for that. Lord, let it comfort us in those times of drought. Let it be uh, an uplifting principle to us, truth for us in those days of victory, a motivator for us that we would live for you. each and every day, so that our lives would be an honor to you. We thank you for these things. Thank you for each one here tonight. Bless their lives. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.